Uh, we want to continue from uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, last week we took a break, but uh, the week before that, uh, we had gone through the first part of, uh, of Philippians uh, chapter 2. Just as a recap, we had said the, the big statement there came from uh, chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul says, live your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Live your life in a way that honors what God has done in Christ Jesus. He says, live your life in a way that, that is worthy of the gospel to the watching world. And it says to the, live in unity so that those who are outside will see the gospel will be dramatized to them. And it says, even amongst each other, live in a way that is worthy of the gospel in humility. And we saw in, in, in uh, so that's from chapter 127, but we also ended with the example of Christ through his renunciation, his incarnation, and his exaltation. How he sets that example for us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And the two verses I'm going to share today is just an, over, an emphasis of that same statement, that is your life is what you live for. I mean, it's the question, it begs the question that Leonard Ravenhill asked, that is what you are living for, what Christ dying for. Is what you are living for, worth Christ dying for. We talked, three, two other things we talked about last week was the distinctives of a person who lives a life that is worthy of the gospel. One of them was that you should expect to suffer as a Christian. Because if you're not ready to suffer, you've put yourself in the bull's eye of temptation to live a life that is not worthy of the gospel. Right? And we said one of the, incentive, one of the incentives that's then given is what we have in Christ Jesus. From verse 1 when it says, if there be any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And we also highlighted what we have in Christ from Ephesians chapter 1. So today I want to spend, uh, this is probably one of the shortest sermons if you're visiting us for the first time. I'm not going to take more than two hours like I usually do. <laughs> Just a little less than two hours. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Three things I want to highlight that are I have seen in that passage are one, a command that has been given for us who are trying to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. There's a command that's been given, uh, a command to obey, right? A command to obedience. But two, there's um, conditions for the obedience to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And three, consolation for those who are striving to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. So those are three things we want to highlight from this particular passage. Next slide. So the command that is given there, it says, therefore now my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but much more, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. This clearly uh, indicates that Paul is writing to people, to those who are saved. And he shows us, one of the indicators is when he says, my beloved one is writing to them. Right? Say, the instruction, the command that's going to be given, it's exclusive to only those who are born again. To those who are born again, he says, to my beloved, those who are in union with Christ, those who are in the fellowship of Christ, those who are God's elect, he said, work out your own salvation. Work out your salvation. Here's a temptation that every believer would have. Is that when you're saved, it's almost like, you know what? I paid, it's a one-off subscription that I did. You hear many people talk about, you know, I got born again in high school. This is why our nation is 90% Christian. Because people think that they paid off the one-time subscription to be saved. But Paul here says, work out your salvation. Here's what he doesn't mean for those who are believers. This does not mean, work out your salvation, does not mean you're working for your salvation to attain it. Like when Paul says, work out your salvation, it's not saying, listen, I have to earn this thing. <laughs> I have to attain it. So I have to apply myself. I have to apply myself to works in order to attain salvation. That is not what's meant by Paul in this particular passage. Work out your salvation doesn't also mean that I'm working up my salvation. I'm increasing its quality. Like what I'm going to do will improve on the quality of my salvation. That's not what Paul is saying as well. He's also not saying, work out your salvation, like figure it out. Like what is your salvation? You know how people these days have my own truth. This is my truth. You have your truth. So I'm trying to work out my truth aversion, my own version of salvation. That's not what Paul is saying. That work out your own truth. Calculate and figure out and arrive at your own version of salvation. And we see that these days that the people who are coming up with different types of salvation. What we need to avoid also on this command, right? An error that we need to watch out for is someone who reads these two verses and say, if I'm to work hard in the relationship to my salvation, then I contribute to part of it. It's like I contribute to part of it. Christ plays a part and I play a part in working out this salvation. It's a transaction, it's a deal. Here's a reminder, useful reminder, that you contribute, do you know the one thing that you contribute to your salvation? It is the sin that made it necessary. The only thing you bring to the salvation equation is the sin that made it necessary. Even 
your own salvation, your coming to Christ. And we'll see that uh, towards the end of verse uh, 13 when it talks about God's sovereign will. That even your coming to Christ was not your own doing. You didn't wake up and decide, oh, I want to be a Christian. The need for Jesus was granted to you by the Holy Spirit. It is God who has sought man from day one from the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. It is God who keeps coming throughout Scripture. There's never a moment that man just said, oh, guess what? I need salvation. So your, your need, your, your, your sense of, oh, I realized that my life was going down a drain, so I decided to get saved. Even that was given to you by the Holy Spirit. You contribute nothing Nothing, not even the consciousness of the need. That didn't even come from you. But it's God who opened the eyes of your heart to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And the second error to avoid here is someone could say, if God works in me, then I don't need to work hard at following Jesus Christ. <laughs> Which is a bigger problem, right? <laughs> And you can see that there's a tension there, that it says, work out your salvation, and you see what he'll say in, in verse 13 as well, when he talks about, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You could say that, you know, I don't have to work hard at following Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, you have to work like a slave to follow Jesus Christ. It's going to be the single most significant aspect of your existence, your salvation will demand your time. It will have to change your relationships. It will have to infiltrate your marriage. It has to dominate your singleness. Everything that concerns you. It's not just something that you subscribe to and put on the side. And the New Testament is full of examples, metaphors, and images that emphasize this effort to work out your salvation. Philippians 3 verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Romans 14 verse 19 says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual understanding. That's pursuit, that's there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27 says, Do you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable prize, but we have an imperishable prize, so we do not run aimlessly. We, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself am denied. Hebrews 12 verse 1 talks about, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. And 1 Timothy 6 verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called... Uh, and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What then does working out your salvation look like? What does it practically look like? This command that we've been given to work out your salvation. It's personal, 
but it's very practical. Paul has said, work out your salvation. One of the temptations that we have is to work out other people's salvation. <laughs> right? <laughs> as an individual and as a group, sometimes as, as, as Christians, we are bursting on for what we are against and what we don't believe and what we hate and what, you know, and what we condemn rather than what we stand for. And sometimes we are concerned about many other people's salvation. Like, oh, look at what this guy's... No, it says, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. The challenge we have in, in Nairobi, I think that sometimes, I think it translates to our approach to salvation, is we look at other Christians and how they are behaving. I almost call it the Nairobi queue mentality. Have you ever been on a queue in Nairobi? You, you stand, I know some of y'all, you don't stand on queues, it's all right. <laughs> Socially distanced. In, remember the days when people used to stand on queues? Before the virus. You stand on a queue. I used to go to Huduma Center. You stand on a queue. The queue is long, right? But you find this guy is really happy. He's like, wow, look at all those people behind me. Not even concerned whether the queue is moving and whether he's being served, right? It's just like... Wow, I'm number two, my guy. Can you look at that? The preoccupation is who they are ahead of. But Paul is, work out your own salvation. Practically, this is what it looks like. It means that if you are to follow Christ, we must continue to call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means if you are to work out our salvation, it could look like continuing to receive God's grace. We must continue to manifest manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Continue to working out our salvation might look like continuing to go before God in prayer. Continuing to work on, in, on our salvation might look like continuing not to reject the assembling of ourselves for worship. That we must continue to gather for worship. that the church and the gathering of, of, of saints is not one of the things that has been disrupted. It's like, oh, this has been disrupted. Oh, we don't need printers anymore. We don't need this. Oh, Kodak was disrupted. This company, this large uh, corporation was... Even gathering in church has been disrupted. Working out your salvation means you do not stop gathering with the saints as commanded in Scripture. And there are many other things that you could add there. Working out your salvation means a daily reliance on God's Word, a daily going back, delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. But the next thing that it gives there is a condition for obedience. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. So now, first condition that he gives for that, he says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Right? This is not the first time he's saying this. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27, here's what he had said, which is the statement that had premised this conversation from, from last week. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, right? He repeats that whether I'm there, whether I'm present or whether I'm absent. You see, here's a bit of a context, right? These guys loved Paul. He mentioned that no other church was concerned for him more than him. He even mentioned, last week I talked about their generosity, that this is not one of those churches that he, he doesn't mention if there was any heresy on, on, in that church. They loved Paul. But here's what is, it's, it's almost like there's, there's, there's a warning or something that he needs to be, us to be aware of that we are also susceptible to today. Right? That it could be easy for these believers to root and to pivot their obedience in the person of Paul, right? That he's our pastor, he's our preacher, or some other Christian, or some other person, right? So you wanted to win them off any obedience to be tied to the presence of a spiritual leader. It's like your, your, your obedience to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, to follow this command to work out your salvation, cannot be based on a person. It cannot. That's why we, we, we really need to push back on people who are worshipping, who are coming up with spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, who they are now worshipping, who their words have equal status to the word of God. They've been responsible for that approach to when we now start elevating men and women. We've got to watch out. And he's winning them off that, right? It's like, it cannot be rooted in whether Craig is following Christ or not, whether Pam is following Christ or not, whether I'm following Christ or not. It cannot. Your obedience cannot be based on that. But secondly, it looks like that's what he's doing. Uh, winning them off an obedience tied to the presence of him as a spiritual leader. But the basic point here is work out your salvation all the time. <laughs> all the time. All the time. Wherever you are, whether I'm there, whether we're gathered, whether work on it, all the time. Your faith is not just for a certain occasion. That's why sometimes as a pastor, I really don't like going to like social functions. It's almost like, you know, they remember faith like, oh, it's time to end this thing. Oh, pastor, please come and pray for us. <laughs> it's like this small guy who wakes up, I'm just like here to pray. Like faith has no bearing on conversations that I am. Nah, I'm, I refuse usually. Nah, nah, find someone else. <laughs> find someone else. I'm not doing it. He's like, all the time. He says, whether I'm there or whether I'm not, I'm not there. But that's the first condition. The second condition he gives, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So the first one, he says, work it out whether, it doesn't, do, it, it doesn't matter who's there and who's not there. But secondly, do it all the time uh, in terms of that first part. But the second condition he's giving, he says, do it, but with fear and trembling with fear and trembling. This is not the first time Paul 
is using this language. He, has, he uses it in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, 2 Corinthians 7 15, Ephesians 6 verse 5 when he says, I came to you with fear and trembling. What does this mean? And what doesn't it mean? This is what it does not mean, right? He's not, what is, what, what is, what he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not directing them to a cringing fear, right, of a criminal he's, who's wondering, when, when will I be caught? Or someone who's committed a fraud, right, who's wondering, oh, will I be caught out? Will I be figured out? So is this what I should do with fear and trembling? Like, this is a fluke. Maybe I shouldn't be here. So I should, you know, so I should have, you know, some fear and trembling. Have you ever been in a place where you think, I'm not supposed to be here? I'm not supposed to be here. You've heard me mention my, my story of the, the one time I ever ended up in business class. I told you one time I was on a flight. Asked for my seat number, and I realized I'm in business class. I knew I'd paid for economy. Oh, I can only afford economy. Went into the economy, went to the business class. Sat there, I'm like, thank you, look at me. <laughs> looking at people, you know, walking past, going to economy, just looking at them like, yo, I hope you don't get mugged back there, man. <laughs> like, like, yo, bro, it's tough there, it's tough, it's tough. <laughs> but then the hostess comes back to me and says, excuse me, Mr. Takanda Chikwaikai, Ah, oh, there's been a huge mistake. You're not supposed to be here. It's like, it's like spoils of war. Let me take the cashew nuts and the jinx. <laughs> Let me go back. <laughs> Gotta have some ev- greatest eight minutes of my life, right? <laughs> so, but in that moment, I was like, will I be figured? Like, what happened? Will I be figured out? How, how did I end up here? I knew I was counting down that any time I'm going to be discussed. That's not what Paul is talking about. <laughs> that fear and trembling. That, oh, I'm going to be discovered. That, oh, I'm a sinner. I don't even, I'm not even supposed to be. Am I really? You don't have an assurance of your salvation. So fear. <laughs> because you could lose this thing. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Because you cannot lose your salvation. It's not yours to begin with. Salvation belongs to our Father. You cannot lose it. So that's not what he's talking about. Like, just in the event that I lose. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that, that I could be found out or it's uncertain that I could lose it. But what could Paul be talking about? could be asking us to, be sens- to have a sensitive awareness to the preciousness of salvation given to us, resulting in a trembling concern, lest we fail to live up to it or we live beneath it. That be careful, the salvation. You could live beneath it to the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. Remember we mentioned them two weeks ago in Ephesians that in Christ Jesus we have an inheritance. We are redeemed. We have been chosen. We are elected in Christ Jesus. This is like, imagine, it's like you could live beneath the privileges that you have in Christ Jesus. 
This fear and trembling could be a fear of a growing awareness of the important issues like you do not want in light of this salvation, in light of what Christ has done in verse 9 to 11, right? When he talks about, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow down in heaven and earth, in heaven and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That we might dishonor God out of love and out of reverence for Him. To those who are married, there are times when either your friends uh, will ask you for, you know, for a random plan. Like, you know what? Do you want to do this? And I'm like, ah, let me check with my spouse first, right? Let me check with my spouse first. I see someone elbowing their spouse like you hear what the pastor say. <laughs> Check with your spouse first. <laughs> right? Well, I'm like, I need to do this. Like, okay, I need to check with my wife. Not that you dread what your wife would do. Uh, if you do, may God help you. But you're like, no, you know what? I'm concerned. I don't want it to be any offense between us. Right? So that fear of offending God, of not honoring what God has done in Christ Jesus. It could be work out your salvation, could be an awareness of your own sin and your own depravity as a person. The reality of temptation. Right? That, you know what? <laughs> I might fail. God, there's a reality of temptation that I need to take heed This could mean that you are afraid of not living up to the privilege as God's child and could suffer loss of rewards and perhaps the loss of experiential intimacy with God. It's like, I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But in light of all that he has given, like, you know, he is, it's, it's, it's possible as a Christian when you don't work out your salvation with fear, with reverence, with the seriousness that it deserves, that you could actually miss out on what we have in Christ Jesus. And what we have as revealed in his scriptures. So it almost give, it gives like a consolation and a comfort uh, to that. Uh, move on to the next slide. So what assurances do I have in light of these conflicting things that are mentioned with fear and trembling that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fallen, I might miss the privileges, you know, what, 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 you know, it almost gives the comforts that we have in this command. And the first comfort is that it is God who works these things. It is not you. It is God. The reality, so the, the consolation we have, number one, is the reality of his working. It's not uh, if God works to will and to will. It says it is God who works in you. He will work and he's at work. That's why uh, Paul also talks that I'm confident of this one thing, that he is able, the one who has committed this thing is able to see this to completion. 
that God will do his work in you. That it is him. It's not premised on us, but it is premised on him. But the, so the comfort is that it is God, right? It is God. But the second thing is, um, is that that's why it is God who's holding on to you. No one, those who are saved, no one can ever snatch them from his hand. So on one end, you're working out your salvation, but on another end, God is holding you to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before God. So in, 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 a, in, in a sense, we're not even holding on to God for dear salvation. For, oh, I've got a hold on, like God is dragging us and I'm holding on to dear salvation. But it is God who's holding us in the palm of his hand. That is the comfort that we have. That nothing, what Romans chapter 8 talks about, right? First part is there's no condemnation, there's no separation, and there's no defeat for them that are in Christ Jesus. That's the comfort that Paul gives right now, that it is God who wills to work and not ourselves. That's the comfort and the confidence that we can find from this. And it says, it's, it's, it's God who works both to will and to do. Who works in you both to will and to, and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. I want to say this one thing before I give us a whole, just, just practical things to reflect on. God is doing this for his own pleasure, for his own pleasure that as we work out our salvation, as we seek to live a life that is worthy, our focus should be God's pleasure, that God does this in his sovereign will. He's working for the fulfillment of his own pleasure. And that should be our focus, right? To please God. Why should that be a point of focus for us? To join God in seeking his own pleasure, right? Because if you please God, right, this is one of the things that guarantees the most welfare for in this world and in the world to come. God's pleasure, the seeking of God's glory. Because God is a good God. Anything that God finds pleasure, takes pleasure in, it will eventually end up being for your good. Not eventually, automatically. It is for your good. Because we find it hard because we, 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 we try to transpose or translate that in human terms. Because what we are tempted to hear is selfish and self-seeking, right? And driven by their own agenda. These are people who are selfish, self-seeking. So we think, oh, is that what God, God just wants his own, no, no. Because this is a good God. So whatever he finds pleasurable, when you seek his pleasure and his glory first, you're actually doing good for yourself. <laughs> Man cannot please God without bringing himself to a great amount of happiness. For if anyone pleases God, it is because God accepts you as his child. He has given you the blessings of adoption. 
he pours on you his grace, right? If anyone does not please God or seek his pleasure, they will inevitably bring upon themselves sorrow and suffering in this life. The core of God's joy. That's why God, if find out the things that God delights in, in the scripture. He says, I do not delight. In Ezekiel, he says, I do not delight in the death of people. It is not my desire that men should perish, but that they should all come to the knowledge of truth. God is interested in your joy in this world and in the world to come. So that means even the things that God allows for his own pleasure in his sovereign will, they are still for our good. That's a hard thing to grasp. That even the painful things, that even anything, any challenge that God allows, that he's allowing it for our sanctification so that we, should, we can become more like his son, Jesus Christ. One writer said, God does not protect you from anything that makes you more like Jesus. God does not protect you from anything that makes you more like his son. And he finds pleasure in you becoming like his son. And when you are more like his son, when you conform to the image and likeness of his son, there's nothing, there's no greater happiness than that experience. That's what he, that's what he says. In closing, what are some of the practical, what, what then practically should this do for us? Just some as a way of application or in a way that we should think is that even though God is the one who's working, causing us to will, causing us to love, causing us to pursue, causing us to be God conscious, so that we, don't, we are not on either extreme, on one extreme that, you know, we work out our own salvation, God does not play a part in our lives, that we're like, you know what, God just gave me the, you know, the entry, at the entry point, that's what he guaranteed, so right now, I'm the one who's doing, you've heard people say, uh, do your best and let God do the rest, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's being used, it's like God does not help those who don't help themselves, <laughs> right? But it's rooted in, a, you know, in terms of my own salvation and my experience in him, I have to do everything. Or you could err on the side of, you know what? God is the one who works in me. So I don't have to do anything. I won't move until God speaks. Has God spoken to you? Don't do anything until the Lord speaks or you want an urge or you want a dream or you want God to start you. Then that's how you move in your salvation or in the things of God. Now, the reality of God's work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, one, does not suspend the necessity of our work. So God's working does not suspend our need to work. It does not negate our own work. And they do not negate each other. God working, where we're, you know, we're waiting for God to speak or waiting for some sign or something else, it, 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 it does not. But even our own working doesn't mean 
that God has stopped working in us because that the reality of God working should empower us to actually work. Another thought that we should that sh- that should be a feature in our lives as Christians is that God's working is the basis of our trust and confidence, not ours. God's working should be the basis of our trust and confidence, not ours. That we should focus on our efforts and still trust in God's effort. Remembering that this is the same man who was saying, who wrote this uh, passage, who wrote the verses that, by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is of God, not as a result of works. So it's that balance and that tension that we live with. To say, God does a work, but I still have a duty, and they don't negate each other. But if you're here this morning, this is written to believers, right? This is written to believers. This is a blessing. This is a privilege of those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. That God has chosen them, that God has looked for them, that God has knocked on the doors of their hearts. In fact, if you are here and, you know, you're not a believer, your being here has been orchestrated by God. If it is a girl that has brought you, (laughs) says, come to my church, and you think you're coming here for that chick, it's not. (laughs) It's God who has enabled you to be here in this moment. For whatever reason you could be here this morning, it is God who is drawing you to himself. Why don't you say yes to God? That's what salvation is, right? The gift of salvation. It is God saying, here is what I have done in Christ Jesus. You don't have to do anything. In fact, you could be thinking, oh, the sin in my life, you're self-disabling. You're just saying yes to the proposal that Christ has made. And he's like, listen, I have died for your sins and I'm calling you to an eternal destination with me for the rest of your life. So if you're here, Know that every time you hear the gospel, every time you end up in a place where the gospel is being proclaimed, it is God who is doing that work to draw you to himself.